Well, thank you so much for having me here tonight. It was a wonderful gooseberry pie I had. I haven't had gooseberry pie forever. You know, I grabbed it before anybody else could get it. So, uh, Thank you, Jim, for inviting me. Um, we, uh, Faith and I spent about 20 years in Japan. Uh, we were working with a local church there, and then we started a Bible college, a small Bible college in Tokyo. Uh, we ran that for 15 years, um, and then we've been, uh, recently, as uh, Jim described, we've been, we started a ministry called Forging Plowshares. It's a kind of a hard ministry to explain, and Jim did better than I can. I think I should have recorded what he said, but we're a community of people that we meet. Uh, we, I, uh, we meet uh, and have a fellowship in the house, and then uh, we have classes there in the house. Uh, we also have a website. If you want to go to forgingplowshares.com, uh, you can hear our podcasts. I put up two or three things uh, in a week. They include Bible studies and interviews with various people. Um, and then uh, we have a, a, a garden uh, that we do there, a, a community garden. Uh, but uh, we're trying, as Jim said, to do a kind of alternative education, uh, not just for the local community, but we're going to, I have uh, cohorts in Atlanta, Georgia, and in Connecticut, and we're putting together then an alternative kind of Bible and theological education. My subject tonight uh, is what real difference does Christianity make in your life? And maybe we could all point to a dramatic conversion. I can. Maybe you can tell your personal testimony. But is there something you can point to which everyone, Christian and non-Christian, can recognize as a concrete difference? That is, can you describe precisely what difference Christ has made at the deepest level of your personality. And this, uh, I, I need to explain a little bit my approach here, the background. After working in Japan for 20 years, uh, you discover that culture, Japanese culture, but of course when you're in a different culture, it's just a fact you notice about cultures, shape us in a profound way at the deepest level. Culture provides us with the range of emotions that we have, the substance of our personality. It's passed maybe through our family, our particular circumstance, but ultimately it's the larger context of culture. The very concept of personhood and the experience, I believe, of our deepest subjectivity, of our, of our very psychology, is prescribed by our culture. In Japan, this is literally true. There is a Japanese psychoanalyst, Takeo Doi, and this is kind of my entry into the subject of psychoanalysis in my PhD work, um, which not only describes, he describes, but he prescribes the depth psychology of Japanese. And this led me to the realization that every culture shapes us personally and mentally. And we need to recognize this as Christians. Isn't the whole point of Christianity that we have new birth, 
that we are a different kind of subject. If we're not able to recognize and describe this difference, then how can we attain it? And so my research is focused on the stating this difference specifically, and if you have your Bibles tonight, turn to Romans 7 and 8. And I'm going to be continually referencing chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, because I think it's here that we encounter the, the difference. The difference between chapter 7 and 8, I believe, is the difference between the non-Christian and the Christian. So, as Christians, we're born again. We believe that, you know, as Paul says, I have been crucified. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. Can we run down what gets crucified? Can we say what it might mean in real world terms to have Christ living within us? I believe that we can literally describe the rearrangement of human personality. I believe we can describe the alternative psychological and spiritual dynamic. Now, I'm not saying all this in some original way. In fact, there's a group of people, they're all atheistic, psychoanalytic, Marxist, materialist. Now, that's not a promising beginning for a talk. But they're all highly interested in Romans chapter 7. When I first came to the United States, in fact, there was a conference in New York City. And all of the main speakers were atheistic Marxists doing psychoanalysis. And doing the, the conference was on the Apostle Paul. Has Paul said something that secular atheistic psychoanalysts find interesting? Oh, you bet. They're saying that their entire theory is contained in Romans chapter 7. The most prominent psychoanalyst philosopher uh, is a, a man named Slavoj Žižek. Has anybody here heard of Žižek? Oh, okay. If you were a college student today on the secular university campus and somebody mentioned Slavoj Žižek, He's sort of like uh, you know, Elvis Presley in academia. He's the rock and roll star of the day. Uh, and when he comes to college campuses, people literally beat down the doors to get in to hear him. And Zizek then is in turn following a French psychoanalyst called Jacques Lacan. I'm telling you these names, I'm going to reference them a little bit. But Zizek and Lacan both focus on Romans chapter 7. And they find there a description not only of the makeup, but of the formation of human personality. Zizek gets, I believe, the details right. I'm giving you a warning here. But I believe he makes a major category mistake. He confuses Paul's description of his life before conversion with what it means to be a Christian. Now Zizek is not alone here because many people, churches, theologians, think that Romans chapter 7 is about the normal Christian life. Tonight I think we could divide up the audience here. I believe we have two conceptions of Christianity. 
There is the Romans 7 conception, but many think is the portrayal of what the normal Christian life is to look like. And this is the key thing that I want to address tonight. I want to take you from a Romans 7 Christianity to a Romans 8 Christianity. Uh, and of course what I'm saying is that Romans 7, uh, maybe on the surface, it doesn't look that different from Romans chapter 8. It may appear that the two sorts of Christianity, you know, are really just a slight difference. But if Romans 7 is describing the normal Christian life, I would suggest there is no difference between this sort of Christian and a complete atheist. In fact, Zizek is an atheist. He's an atheistic Marxist. He called himself a Pauline materialist. He believes that he's a good Romans 7 Christian. Guess what? There's no God in Romans 7. There's no Holy Spirit in Romans 7. There's very little of what we would call Christianity in Romans 7. And this is the problem I believe we face today as Christians. As a group, we're indistinguishable from the world. The comprehension of the difference, of what difference Christ actually makes, seems to have escaped us. Uh, maybe at the level of describing a different worldview, at a personal level of describing in concrete terms, what's the difference? So I want to spell out in the most concrete fashion the psychological and the personal at the personal level, the difference that Christ makes. Now, if you're looking at Romans 7, and it's beginning in verse 7, you're going to notice that something strange is happening. And that is that Paul continually uses the word I. Who is this I? Is this a Christian I, or is this a non-Christian I? And maybe the real question is, who am I? How do you get an eye? Or what were the ingredients necessary for the eye? Paul tells us in Romans 7. And of course the, the stylistic shift is one that tells us Paul is doing something very unique in this section. Um, and I'm, I've concluded, I'm, I'm concluding not on, by myself... I won't bore you with the scholarship, but I believe the majority of Christian scholars will agree that what Paul is describing is the experience of fallen humanity. The first person I, by the word, the Greek word I, transliterated is the word ego, right? Everybody knows the word ego. I, I think I heard you say that as a group. Um, Paul is describing Adam. He's describing himself, I believe. But he's describing every I. He's pointing back to Genesis 3 and he's following the pattern there that's in Genesis 3 of the fall of man. And in doing so, he's describing the formation of the I. And remember that for Paul, the Christian is going to have to crucify this I. So the I is not the pre-fallen subject, nor is it the saved subject, 
Brother, this eye is formed with the fall of man. And in chapter 7, we have I some 20 times. Guess what is missing in chapter 8? There is no I in chapter 8 of Romans. Uh, This is similar to what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. There is no I. Adam and Eve never speak that word before the fall. Do you remember the first sentence out of Adam's mouth? When God comes upon the scene, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked. So I hid myself. Four eyes, one sentence. Adam has an eye problem. He has an ego problem. And he's, the, this first sentence is really what Paul, I think, is reflecting in Romans 7. Here's the eye problem. Here's the ego problem that he's going to solve in chapter 8. If Paul in Romans 7, 7 is giving voice to Adam, he has to use the word I. Because the entire idea is that with the birth of the I, with the fall of man, death itself is introduced into the human subject. In Paul's description, two things are necessary to bring about the I. Remember, we're not talking about the human subject, we're talking about the fallen human subject. The one thing is the prohibition You know, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or the law, the the prohibition in the garden was kind of a, you know, a proleptic look at the uh, law given in uh, Exodus. And the other thing, and this is the difference in the reading of Romans 7, many people miss the deception. Paul says two things are necessary to make an eye. The law and the deception. In Genesis chapter 3, the deception is from Satan, right? Genesis 3, 4. Everybody knows the verse, you shall not die, you shall be like gods, knowing good and evil. Paul doesn't mention the serpent, but he mentions sin. And so, the serpent or sin deceives us. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. 7, 7. So with the advent of the eye, death has come upon the scene. Paul's equating these two things. And he speaks of this death, of this eye, and his escape from this law. We know this is what he's saying because elsewhere he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. What is salvation going to consist of? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. The law has to be suspended in some way. To crucify the I, or I's relationship to the law, the law must be undone as the binding force in our life. Now don't get me wrong here. Not that the law is the problem. I is the problem, and specifically... The orientation of the ego to the law. This is where we get two different Christianities. 
Some people are going to say the law is the problem. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying the eye is the problem. This peculiar subject, and this is, I'll do a little psychoanalysis here with you. Don't don't go bleary-eyed on me. But if you've ever read Sigmund Freud, you know the tripartite picture of the person in Freud? The ego and the superego. The superego is just that punishing presence upon the ego. This is what both Zizek and Lacan have noticed about Paul, that Paul is describing Freud's death drive. The death drive is just that self-punishing, masochistic attitude you know, that we take toward ourselves. It's kind of the dealing in death. So we might call this I the subject of the law. And remember that in Paul's argument, the law pertains only to those who break it, right? This is his long argument in Romans. So what Paul means in Romans 7 by the law is the law which is utilized by sin to kill me. And so both Paul and Freud converge on the notion that the law within us does not stop us from doing evil but is itself the provocation of sin. Let me state it in a different way. Our morality, our supposed morality, is precisely our immorality. Our conscience is precisely what spurs us to sin and evil. This is 7, 8, and 9. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. So Paul's description gets at the emergence of the ego in its alienation from the law, and there's a split, right, within the self. Think here, law, I. Um, As Jacques Lacan will describe it, The ego or I is a being for death. That's the way Paul describes it. Death defines the being and the substance of the ego. So, you know, what is death? Well, according to Paul, when we die, we lose control. There's no capacity for law-keeping. We lose human agency. Verse 15 of chapter 7, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. There is an inherent incapacity in the structure of the ego. And this incapacity is equated with death and evil. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, But the doing of the good is not, for the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. The second thing that is necessary that Paul describes is the deception. Uh, This commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me, verse 10 and 11, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, And through it killed me. And so Satan uses the prohibition, you shall not die. He presents the lie, embrace the lie, you shall not die. And what happens to you? You die. 
That's the irony. But Jesus is addressing when he says, He who would save his life shall lose it. And that he who would forfeit his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. He's undoing the lie of Satan. The way that Sigmund Freud has put this is there's no death in the human unconscious. We kind of hold to an innate immortality. We presume that perhaps in our unconscious. And so sin is connected with deception. Not only here, but I believe in throughout Scripture. And this, this may be a thing that we miss. Isaiah refers to sin as lying, a lying covenant with death. Jesus refers to the lying, you know, the native language of the Pharisees is lying. The, the native language of your father. And he connects this to the history of murder. So the law marks sin because sin arises with the law and we imagine there is life in the law that's the deception we imagine we have innate immortality or you can state this in any number of ways but Paul tells us God alone is immortal Jesus says he who imagines that he can save himself that's his problem the dynamic of this lie is the dynamic of the fallen human subject. This is where Zizek and Lacan find their greatest common cause with Paul. There is a tripartite self, and we need to remember the three parts. I didn't ask Jim to give me a blackboard. I didn't want to get carried away here. But uh, if we can imagine the three parts, I'm going to displace the three parts when we get to chapter 8. So remember the three parts. The first part is the I, the ego, the object that we posit as a result of the fall. The I is what we would save in our self-salvation systems. This is what we must get rid of, though, to be saved. John calls it the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I think also referring uh, to Genesis 3. They've turned from privileging the Word of God auditory to privileging sight, a kind of objectifying lust of the eyes. Lacan will call it the mirror stage. Paul throughout Romans 7 is using the Greek term blepo. Just means sight. There is no visual comprehension of the self in chapter 8. That's number one. The second thing is the lie itself, the medium of the law. That's the law, right? Or that's, you know, we could grow it up big, just authority or language. But law is taken up into our identity. Don't think law out there, but think law taken up into our ourselves. But as Paul and Freud both describe it, we incorporate the law into the mind that constitutes us. You know, Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your God. That's not Paul. That's not Freud. That's Disney. Um, Our consciences are seared and fallen, according to Paul. The very seat of morality is our immorality. Think of who killed Christ. 
Was it the unethical people? No, it was the ethicists. It was the religious. It was the well-educated. It was the sophisticated. It was the best of people, right? The Pharisees that killed. I mean, we're not going to lay all the blame there, but they're the ones that Jesus confronts. The best of people in their morality, precisely because of their morality, would kill Christ. This is Paul's description in chapter 5. When the first Adam meets the second Adam, there is a death in the works. The third thing, and this is the key thing, the third element is what is denied in a lie. The negation, death, death denied. You won't die. And in denying death, you embrace it. The power of death is one that we continually take up into ourselves. Death isn't just something that happens to you at the end of life. Jesus calls us the walking dead. Not Stephen King. Jesus said that first. There is a kind of alternative ground for ourselves that Paul has already described in Romans 7 that in taking this death-dealing word up into ourselves, we deal in death. He says their throats are an open grave. This is chapter 3, verse 9 to 18. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In the presumption of sin, the knowledge of good and evil, humans have become the arbiters of the law. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, we go from Genesis, the story of Cain. Do you remember the next major figure is Lamech? You remember Lamech? He's a kind of rapper, you know. He does death rap. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, a young man has wounded me. Listen to my voice, you wives. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech will be avenged 77-fold. I am the avenger, says Lamech. I am the arbiter of the law. Embrace the satanic lie, you won't die, and you deal in death. So it's not just death that you take up in yourself, but it's a kind of violence. Now all of this explains human experience as Paul describes it. And he describes it in the word desire. I did not know what it was to desire. I did not know what it was to covet. Desire or covetousness is kind of a first order experience of deception. The thing I've just described for you, I don't believe it's conscious. I don't believe that you can articulate that apart from Paul, apart from the New Testament. The way that we experience this is in human desire. Desire is deceived. It's a first order deception. You know, think here of James. He says, sin, when one is tempted, he is carried away and enticed by the law. 
Paul is following you know, the Jewish understanding uh, of making desire center. Eve turns from trust, trusting God to the command, uh, uh, you know, the word of God to trusting in her eyes. The fruit is good for eating, for desirable for attaining wisdom. So desire contains the lure that life is promised in this commandment. Here's sin's deceit. And so Paul describes the process of being reduced to a cadaver. He says this alien force found an opportunity, an opening, and came upon me, reducing me to a sight of desire. And then he goes through and describes this self-antagonism. I do what I do not want to do, and what I want to do I do not do. I have lost agency, this desire controls. Now, I don't want to end before I tell you the answer, right? We've just done Romans 7, let's do Romans 8. Let's get rid of the eye. How do you displace the eye? And this is where Romans 8 begins. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What's chapter 7 about? Sin and death. What's chapter 8 about? The freedom from the law of sin and death and the law of life in the spirit. So Paul, you know, when he says therefore, he's referring back to chapter 7. He's saying this is the condemnation that you're living under. You don't need to live there. That is, the condemnation and the salvation are a present tense reality that we begin to live out here and now. Now several things get displaced in chapter 8. There's no I, and in place of the I, we have the corporate identity in Christ. uh, There is no Holy Spirit in chapter 7. Chapter 8 is all about the Holy Spirit. There's no hope. Literally, there's no hope in chapter 7. Hope is the theme of chapter 8. There's no desire in chapter 8. We've just described chapter 7 as all about desire. In the Greek, there is literally not the word desire. In some of your bad English translations, it does appear. God, as lawgiver, is thematic. In fact, God only appears, the name God only appears at the end of chapter 7. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank God Jesus Christ, our Lord, has rescued us. That's the transition, though, to chapter 8. There's no God in 7, 7 and following. But in chapter 8, we have Abba, Father. The work of the law is displaced by the life in the spirit. The body of sin, the body of death is what Paul is describing in chapter 8. It's displaced in the resurrection life in the body of Christ. Shame and fear are displaced by righteousness and love. If you have not received a spirit, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out Abba Father verse 14 and 15 there's no prayer in chapter 7 there is a depth of prayer in chapter 8 chapter 7 is all in the visual image we're conformed to the likeness of Christ 
But the word is the image that we conform to, not a visual image. Chapter 7 is a description of agonistic struggle. Chapter 8 is life and peace with a mind governed by the Spirit. Chapter 8 or chapter 7 describes someone incapable of obedience. Chapter 8 says we're made righteous, walking in righteousness in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Chapter 8, verse 4. There's no God, and this is the big one, right? This is where we get to the new identity in chapter 7. But there's new life in the Spirit. The Trinitarian life in the Father. The Father, you know, is the one. Our relationship to God is incorporated into us. Uh, the Father is the primary agent in chapter 8. He subjects creation and hope. Verse 20. He makes all things work together for good in 28. We're known and predestined by Him in 29. But maybe the key is you have not received a spirit of slavery. Verse 15, we cry, Abba, Father. We have a new relationship. The work of the Spirit is the Spirit is the most practical person of the Trinity, right? The Spirit enables us to walk as Christ walked. He empowers our righteousness. Righteousness is not an abstract legal term. Righteousness is something that we live out. We're enabled. Paul says to be made righteous. The Spirit is God's righteousness. His resurrection power will give life to your mortal bodies. Verse 11. By this life you put to the death the deeds of the body. Verse 13. By the Spirit we're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. And then the key, the work of Christ. And this is the work of the atonement. Paul explains how Christ defeats and exposes the lie of sin. The judgment passed on sin brought condemnation so that death reigned, he says in chapter 5, from the time of Adam you know, to the time of Christ. But now God has condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. And he adds here in verse 3, as a sin offering. That's that's important. Because the sin offering is a particular kind of offering. It's the offering for unwitting sin. It's the offering for those who have been deceived. That is that Christ died for the sin as Paul has described it in chapter 7. Not for a general wrongdoing, but for a subject who has gone wrong. The conclusion here, they're still suffering, by the way, in both 7 and 8. But the suffering in chapter 7 is unendurable. You can't do this thing. Paul says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. This is suffering like new birth which is very different than the suffering of death. He says not only this, but we ourselves have the first fruits. We groan within ourselves. This is the suffering of living between the times, right? Who will separate us, he says, from the love of Christ? And then he lists things that could cause us to suffer. Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. 
That is, there's nothing, there's no suffering that can separate us from the love of Christ. The suffering that the world can put upon us is a suffering we've already conquered. It's not the unendurable suffering of chapter 7. Christ has suffered and died and was raised and intercedes so that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now if you've caught it, if you've been listening carefully, I just described the new human subject to you. The Trinity, the I, is displaced by the image of Christ found within us. The law of sin and death has been displaced by a relation to the Father. The body of sin or the body of death has been replaced by life in the Spirit, the power of resurrection. What is being described is a new subject integrated into the very life of the Trinity. Thank you.